right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a Daily Power Power Show, Wednesday, March 2nd. And it is great to see you guys here today. Um, let's jump in. Torah reading, of course, is Pekude. It is the last Torah portion of the book of Exodus. And, of course, it is very special in the culmination of the book. I also want to mention something that I think bears mentioning that I have not yet mentioned in the last few weeks. And that is Vayakal and Pekude, last week's Torah portion, this week's, many, many years. Well, in many years, they are together. They're co-joined as a double Torah portion. You know, like in, in uh, there are some certain Torah portions that can be doubled up, which means you read both of them on the same Shabbat. You study both of them during the week. Vayakal Pekude last week's and this week's, in many years, are actually joined together as one. But in other years, that are leap years, you have an extra month of Adar, you don't need to combine Torah portions into one. You have more weeks to kind of air everything out, give each its own, you know, its own stage. So Vayakel and Pekude are, as they are, you know, on a pure level, they're divided into two separate weeks. So there's a message here, and I want to just open up by focusing on this message. The two words, Vayakal and Pekude, the names of the portions, actually mean very different things. Vayakal means, and he gathered. So it's about gathering and community. Pekude means counting or audit. And so just a quick context. Last week, Moses, the portion begins with Moses gathering the people to tell them about the building of the Mishkan. This week, the Torah portion begins by Moses counting and auditing all the donations that came in and how, many, how much gold and how much silver and how much copper and how much wool and, how, and all that stuff is uh, allocated for the building. So, as the Rebbe points out, Vayakel connotes community, oneness. Pekude denotes differentiation or individualism, individuality. Everything is counted. Everything has a number. Everything is, you know, it's, it's about every, the individual. So one is the focus on the community and one is the focus on the individual. And of course, the message is that both are important. Judaism is always about a community and the individual. Community is good, but never at the expense of the individual. Individual is good. It's great to have individual rights and autonomy, but not at the expense of creating a community. So you really, it's really a balance of both. So in years in which we read Vayakal and Pekudeh together, the message is how they complement each other. In years like this year, in which they are divided into two different weeks, the message is, yes, they both are complementary, but we have a focus this year on, on um, developing each one individually. So last week, we have the opportunity, seven days, we have a whole week to develop the notion of community. How do we unite together? How do we become one? And this week's energy, Pekudeh, it's about working on ourselves as individuals that will then complement the totality and the community and the larger group. But the, fo- the, the initial focus, the immediate focus is on us as individuals. So there's kind of like self-growth and then communal growth or community building. And each one has a space. This year, certainly each one has a space. And the space, the energy of individual growth and um, yeah, individual growth, that happens this week. Okay, with that in mind, hey Mark, good to see you. Hi. Um, with that in mind, we are ready to jump in to the Torah reading for this week. I have this pulled up here. Yep, that is correct. Okay, we are, today is Wednesday, so that means we're up to reading number four. So here we have again, Pekude, reading number four is highlighted. This is Exodus chapter 39. We begin with verse 
33. So as we ended off yesterday, the entire Mishkan, all of the garments, everything was built. Everything is done. It's good to go. So what do they do next? Here we go. Now they brought the Mishkan to Moses. You can imagine they were building it in, I just picture like a warehouse. I don't know. An airplane, hang, airplane hangar. I don't know. They built it in, you know, they built it somewhere, the Mishkan. All the vessels, the walls. I mean, they had to coat things in gold and in silver and copper and hooks and everything. They had to melt things down, or however they did that, into mold, into, into sockets and molds. It's an incredibly elaborate um, experience of building this thing. When it's done, they brought it to Moses. What did they bring? So now you're going to get a list of everything that was made. You ready? Here we go. The tent. That means the, uh, the Mishkan building. The small building that was covered. The tent and all its furnishings, its clasps, its planks, its bars, its pillars, and its sockets. It's the actual structure of the Mishkan. The covering of ram skins dyed red. The covering of tachash skins. You know what's interesting? The first, lay, the first covering is not mentioned. Very, very interesting. There were three or four layers. Three or four layers. The first was the blue, purple, crimson wool. Then there were other then goats, goat hair. Then there was a, a covering made out of goat hair. And then the, ram, the, the, the red ram skins, and then the tachash. That was the fourth layer. Three or four, maybe these were on the same level. But it doesn't mention the other two. I'm assuming what this means is, when it says the tent, refers to the actual structure and those initial coverings, and that's why we're mentioning the additional coverings over here. Does anyone understand what I'm saying? Yes, or am I just speaking, am I kind of like not explaining? I get it. Okay. So basically the tent would be like the building and the initial few layers of covering, which was the wool and the goat's hair covering. And then we have the additional coverings, the covering of ram skins that red, the covering of tachash skins, right? The leather coverings, if you will, and the screening dividing curtain. That was the dividing curtain between the holy and the holy of holies within that building. And of course, they brought him, they brought Moses, the Ark of the Testimony, that's the Ark, and its poles, and the Ark cover. That Ark cover is what had the Kruvim, the cherubs, or cherubim. All right, then they also brought to Moses more items that they had made, the table, that's the showbread table, and all its implements in the showbread itself, the pure menorah, its lamps, the lamps to be set in order, sorry, the pure menorah, its lamps, the lamps to be set in order, right? The lamps to be set in order, like the, eh? and all its implements and the oil for lighting. Basically, the lamps to be set in order, that's an interesting English phrase. It's neres hamaracha, which in Hebrew to me is more straightforward. It's the lamps that were arranged in an order, not to be set in order. I know that sounds a little weird, but it's basically the menorah lamps that were ready to light, so to speak. Okay. So is the pure menorah the basically the framework for the lamps to be fitted into? Uh, no, I don't believe so because the la everything was hammered out of one solid piece. So that what I think it means is the pure menorah, the menorah, aka the menorah of pure gold, that included lamps okay. in an order. 
everything was hammered out. Um, nothing was like, you know, dropped in. It was all from one piece. Um, so which it's was just re-emphasizing that all the pieces were there, melded from one piece, and nothing had been broken, etc. That's what I would. Yeah, that's what I would um, understand that. Um, which took tremendous effort. In fact, I think we've discussed this, is that according to one opinion, they couldn't even make this. It was just too elaborate. They threw it into a fire and God miraculously produced the, um, how came the menorah? So, I mean, they tried, but it just, you know, wasn't going. Uh, but that's one, one opinion. Another, another tradition has it that they actually made it perfectly. All right, 38. Rabbi Howard. Yes. That Rashi has something to say about, about actually, the, and they brought the Mishkan. We're going to get back to Rashi's in a second. I'm going to, I want to go through these verses, and then we get the overall picture, then we're going to go back to do Rashi's. So then they also brought Moses the golden altar. That's the inner altar in, upon which they brought the incense, and the anointing oil, and the incense, and the screen to the entrance of the tent. Now there's another screen. Not only the screen, there were two chambers inside the building, one larger and one smaller, in which was the ark. But of course, outside the building itself, there was another screen, a curtain you know, a hanging curtain, if you will, that was to the entrance of the tent itself. All right, all that they brought to Moses. And they also brought to Moses the copper altar, that's the outer altar upon which the animal sacrifices were brought, and its copper grating, its poles, and all its implements, the washstand, and its base. And, of course, they brought to Moses the hangings of the courtyard. <coughs> that means the... I'm still struggling for a good, a good um, name for this hangs of the courtyard there was a courtyard and that had like a wall but it wasn't a wall it was a screen made of linen i don't know what you would call it a fabric material whatever the hangs of the courtyard it's pillars because it had to stand up somehow and just float them in air it's pillars and its sockets and the screen for the gate of the courtyard that's the entrance of course it's ropes and its pegs because it was held down like a tent and all the implements for the service of the mishkan of the tent of meeting everything else they all brought to Moses, and they also brought to Moses the meshwork garments for the service in the holy, the holy garments for Aaron the Kohen Gadol, and his son's garments for serving as Kohanim. They brought all the garments to Moses. In accordance with all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so did the children of Israel do all the work. <laughs> There's a, lot, a bit of redundancy there. I don't know if you noticed that. In accordance with all, the, with all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so did the children of Israel do all the work. There's did, there's do, and there's work, which all kind of mean the same thing. So in the Hebrew, it's kain asu. Oh, you know what? In the Hebrew, it's not really redundant. As all that God commanded Moses, kain asu b'nei Yisrael as So did the children of Israel. Oh, I see. I'm doing it myself. So the children of Israel did all the work. I would just knock it down to one did. So the children of Israel did all the work. Okay, they did, they did everything as, as, as that was requested. Okay, next, Moses saw the entire work. And lo, <laughs> and lo and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so had they done. So Moses blessed them. Moses is a satisfied customer or, I don't know, customer. Moses is happy. He's pleased. He blesses them because they got it right. All right, this is, it's a very straightforward reading. Um, it furthers the narrative. Not only did they make it, now they bring it to Moses. Moses inspects it. Looks great. You guys did a great job. All right, let's, look, let's take a look at Rashi. 
Why did they bring the Mishkan to Moses? So I said, because, yeah, he's the guy that told them to do it, so they wanted to show that they did the work. No, Rashi says something else, or something deeper, because they could not erect it. They couldn't put it together. They had all the pieces. They couldn't put it together. Rashi continues, since Moses had done no work in the Mishkan, mm, look at that, Moses didn't actually build anything, the Holy One, blessed be He, left for him the task of erecting the Mishkan. Now, erecting it probably means simply just literally putting the walls in the sockets and putting the beams and the bars, like just setting up, just literally setting it up. They couldn't do it. For whatever reason, they couldn't do it. It wouldn't work. They brought it to Moses, and God gave that space for Moses to operate in because Moses didn't participate in the building. Now, oh, Rashi says, no human being could erect it by himself because of the heaviness of the planks. And no human was strong enough to, pull, to put them up. But Moses was able to put it up. So it sounds like it's not just it was falling down randomly, but it was too heavy. Although you would think, like, you had just a bunch of people doing it. Like, how heavy could it be that a team of people couldn't put it up? I mean, how heavy does something have to be? Unless we're talking about lifting an aircraft carrier, right? I mean, like, 10 people is not going to work with that. But, like... Um, it would seem like if you had enough people, it could work. But nonetheless, they couldn't do it by themselves. It was only Moses who was able to do it. Moses said before the Holy One, blessed be he. Moses said to God, how is it possible for a human being to erect a Mishkan? God replied, you work with your hand. In other words, try. Do the effort. Go through the motions. So Moses appeared to be erecting it, and it arose by itself. This is the meaning of what it says. The Mishkan was set up. Was set up as the passive. It doesn't say he set up the Mishkan or they set up the Mishkan. Moses set up the Mishkan. No, it says the Mishkan was set up. That's writing not the active, but in the passive tone. It was set up. Who did it? By itself. It was set up, was set up by itself. This is all found, I'm adding all, this is found in the Midrash of Rabbi Tanchuma. From Midrash Tanchuma 11, that's the source of these insights in Rashi. Okay, Mark. You got the Rashi book. Do you have any footnotes on this? Yeah, actually, the same thing you just said. It said, uh, it said Moses, uh, God told Moses to erect it. He couldn't. And then God told him, you'll be able to. He said, uh, uh, the Holy One blessed me. He said to him, involve yourself with your hand. And it will appear as if you were setting it up. But right. it, will, it will arise and stand by itself. Uh, the note I've got is some additions read uh, so small. Uh, near F instead of the near F. Accordingly, mm-hmm. God's words end with the uh, Yerfa, uh, with your hand, or Biyarfa, with your hand. Got it. Got the it, next got phrase that translated most appeared to be setting it up, but it actually rose up right and stood by itself. It occurs to me this is similar to uh, most carrying the tablets. Correct. According because to one tradition. So heavy, yeah. There's no way he could have, he could have carried them. But uh, they carried themselves. Yeah, according to one tradition, Moses didn't carry the tablets. They carried themselves. And that's why when he saw the sin, the letters, the miracle flew out of the tablets and he couldn't even hold them. And that's why they smashed. It was less him throwing it down and more like he couldn't carry it any further. But it also reminds me of a very important lesson in life. And that is that sometimes we can't do it ourselves. Sometimes we look at, at a task, at a mission, at a goal, at a you know, something that needs to happen, and we say, I I can't do it. And God tells us, uh, well, okay, 
hard for me to say that God tells us in any given situation because I don't have that red phone line. But according to this teaching, the implication would be that sometimes, perhaps God might, might be telling us, you do what you need to do. I'll take care of the rest. Now, if you say, well, I, I can't do it, so I'm, I'm just going like, to walk away, well, then God is not going to do the miracle alone. But if we put in the effort, it could very well be that God is just waiting for the, the appearance of us doing it or for the effort that we put in, and then God will finish the rest. It, it reminds me of one of my favorite stories. And you, I've told this so many times, and I'm sure you know this also from elsewhere. But the famous story of the daughter of Pharaoh collecting Moses from the Nile River. Right? So there Moses is, Moses is, right? As a baby, three-month-old baby, in a basket on the Nile River, you know, just lazy river floating. He's enjoying it. You know, it's great. The, the lazy river ride in the Nile. It's fantastic. And Batya, the daughter of Pharaoh, is there. She's bathing or whatever it is. Some say she's going to Mikvah because she was converted to Judaism, whatever it was. So she's there by the water, either in the water, by the water. And she sees this baby in a basket or she sees this basket which looks like a baby inside. And she stretches out her hand and she collects the basket. Well, on that word, or the words, Vatishlach es Amasa, she sent out her hand, there's a teaching. A famous teaching from our sages that says that her arm unfolded. It says Vatishach as Amasa, that she sent out her Amasa, which is a very weird phrase for arm or hand. And it says that it means Ama al Ama. It unfolded. Ama by Ama. Ama is the, the, the favorite space or distance, length, measurement of the Torah. Everything is measured in Amos or Amot. One amma by one amma, five by five, seven by... Right? All, the, all the Mishkan items were measured in ammas. And amma is about one and a half feet, about 18, 18 to 24 inches, depending on, the, depending on which opinion you prefer. I prefer the 18 inches. So let's say about 18 inches. So her, her arm unfolded amma al amma. It's like the, it's the segment between the, the elbow and the tip of the fingers. That's An amma is this right here. So how, how long is this? I don't know. Everyone's different, but... Approximately a foot and a half-ish, maybe. I don't know. Have a measure. But anyway, the point is like this. That there was a miracle. That she stuck out her hand, and it, it unfolded. Imagine like Gumby or whatever it is. It, Gumby? Gumby? Is Gumby the... Yeah. Anyway, like stretched out. Rip, grabbed the basket and popped in. That's a classic teaching of our sages. Rashi brings it down. Upon which other commentaries ask the question. Hold on. You're telling me that a miracle happened and her arms stretched out, like unfolded, to be able to grab the basket. So, kind of obvious question here. If the basket was so far away that you needed this miracle, why'd she stretch out her hand in the first place? What was she reaching for? She knew the miracle was gonna happen? What does that mean? Why would she reach out? If you see something, well, it's like a baseball game. I love baseball. Love going to baseball games. First of all, I'll just say this. Baseball games are fantastic to go if you want to do other work. I, I can prepare a class. I go to a baseball game. It's fantastic. Take the kids. Have, you know, I, and I also I bring the, the kosher hot dogs, which saves a ton. Well, I mean, it's kosher, number one. Number two, I see the prices at the stadium. It's crazy. And I bring in the food. Like, what is this? I'm like, it's kosher. They're like, boom. By the way, life hack, just say it's kosher. You got, I'm not saying you should do this. I'm just saying if you did do this, they let you in with stuff. Be that as it may. 
sitting there, the kids are watching, everyone's eating, they're all good. And, and as the pace, baseball pace, you know, it's like everyone's walking around the mound for 60 seconds before the next pitch. Great time to prepare. But, you know, when that foul ball is hit or if you're in the outfield, a home run ball. And, you know, for me, I have I, I played a lot of baseball. I, I don't play currently, actively, you know, consistently. But back in the day, huge baseball guy and player, not professional. Anyway, the point, you know, I could judge a ball. I could play infield, outfield. You know, I could, I, could, I could play the positions. But for some reason, in a stadium, when the ball is hit anywhere in the vicinity, you know, it's like, oh, it's coming here. I don't know why, like, something about the orientation just messes me up. And I'm like, everything is potentially coming right at us. Um, not everything, but most things. So here's the thing. If the ball is hit and who knows where, I may stretch out my hand. So I'm like Bacha. You know, it could be, like, way over in section 354. And I'm in, like... 312 and I'm like whoa do I have that and no miracle happens and I don't get the ball but I can relate to the concept of stretching out the hand even when it's not near but with Bacha I'm assuming there wasn't any sort of like warping of time and space it was pretty straightforward that basket was all the way over there upon which I'm back to my question upon which the commentators ask why did she stick out her hand and the answer is because we have to do what we have to do and even if we can't reach it it's a lesson in life we got to do what we got to do sometimes the goal seems out of reach. Sometimes the task seems impossible to accomplish. Judaism tells us, the Torah reminds us, the, the commentaries encourage us to do what you can. Do what you can and let God do the rest. Let God unfold the miracle. Let the arm stretch out. It's like, what, how is it going to help if I give this or do that or help this one? If I do that little bit, is it really going to help the big problem? Slow down. Do what you can. Stick out your hand wherever you can. Let God unfold the rest. And we have a similar message here with the Mishkan. God says to Moses, Moses like, I can't put up the whole thing. God says to Moses, do what you can. You do what you can. You put up what you can. A person says, let's make this now spiritually relevant. A person says, I, how can I build a life dedicated to God? You know how big that is? You know how heavy that is? You know how, how difficult a I'm going to live, I'm going to be a tzaddik? It's like, not gonna, how, how could I live like that? How could I create my mind and heart and body and actions to be a, a sanctuary for God and doing the right thing and bring godliness into the world? And, you know, that's too big of a task. And the answer is, slow down. Don't, don't go all the way to the extreme. Do what you can. Set up what you can. Do the best you can, as Rashi says. Set up with your hands. Do whatever practically you can and let God do the rest. It's a little bit different than let go and let God. Let go and let God is get out of the way, let God do it. This is a little bit different. This is not get out of the way. This is, no, no, God wants you, not, not to get in the way, but God wants your input. God says, you do your input. Give your input. Give what you can. Right? Do what you can. Start lifting. And then I'll, I'll, I'll take care of the rest. That's a promise that God gives Moses. And if I dare, we can, uh, we can extrapolate it for us on some level, on some level. You know, if we think of a perfect picture, it might seem daunting. Setting up our lives as a mishkan, setting up all the holy activities and spaces might be very daunting. Okay, let's take one thing. Take one thing, right? The next moment, this next, uh, you know, choice, let me make it a, a proper choice. 
Let God help the rest. Let's just, let's do what we can and let God do the rest. Okay, hope that makes sense. Uh, back inside, again, we're going through Rashi's. So we have here a Rashi that seems to give us a very technical analysis of how the Mishkan was set up, was physically put up. And we've walked away, hopefully, with a bit of a spiritual insight as well, personal spiritual insight. Next Rashi is found all the way at the end of the reading. Um, so Moses blessed them. Right after he saw the work that they did, they had done everything right, etc. So he blessed them. What was the blessing? It's actually a verse from Tehillim. We say it every Shabbat morning. And it goes like this. He said to them, May it be his will, may it be God's will, that the Shekhinah, God's presence, should rest in the work of your hands. That's pretty cool. That's a pretty amazing blessing. I'm going to take the highlighting off so you can just see it. May it be his will, I'm saying it again, may it be his will that the Shekhinah should rest in the work of your hands. Such a beautiful blessing. The blessing is that if you build it, they will come, that God will show up in the building that you built. You guys just built a uh, magnificent structure. The blessing is, may Hashem like what you did, show up to the space that you built and reveal himself in that space or feel comfortable in that space. As we know in life, we don't control outcomes, we just control our choices. We, we don't have that type of control. To control how it all plays out? I don't know. That's very, that's very grand. That's very lofty. To try to control that piece of it? That seems very, very daunting. But to control what we can control, kind of like what I said before, that's, that's possible. So what Moses is saying is, May God bless your efforts and make them successful. And in this context, success means that God will, will dwell there amongst your, amidst your building. And the blessing continues. And may the pleasantness of the Lord our God be upon us. There's the, 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 the sweet presence of Hashem. May Hashem be with us. And this, Rashi says, is one of the 11 Psalms in a prayer of Moses. I'm just going to explain that for a second. King David authored Psalms. According to our tradition, King David, David HaMelech, authored the book of Psalms. However, however, it's not all original. There's some uh, um, uh, chapters and some verses that were, are, were authored by Abraham and some by Jacob and some by Moses and some by the, even the sons of Korach. Remember those sons of Korah who were swallowed up in the earth and the, they, at the last second they regretted what they had done, being part of the rebellion, and a platform was set up for them and they didn't fall all the way down into the earth and eventually they climbed their way out of it? Well, Livne Korach Mizmarshir. Livne Korach Mizmarshir, a psalm of the sons of Korach. Yeah, they composed songs, psalms to God, and that is incorporated by King David into Tehillim. So Tehillim, psalms, is not a wholly original work. It's a more of a collaborative work. Some of it obviously was authored by David, by King David. Some of it is very personal. It talks about his struggles, his um, physical, spiritual, emotional struggles. And some of it is other stuff. This is one of the 11 Psalms that were authored by Moses. It's, it literally begins, Tefillah LeMoshe. Tefillah LeMoshe means a, 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 a prayer of Moses. And this was his prayer. And the prayer was, 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 uh, was authored around the building of the Mishkan. A prayer, a blessing for the people that God indeed should 
be happy with what they built. Okay, we're going to do the next reading as well because we don't meet tomorrow because of Thursday, JLI. So we're going to do fifth, fifth reading. Yeah. Just real quickly. My, my footnote says this is Psalm 90. Yeah. Uh, if people look it up, that's all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Psalm yes. 90. Okay, any questions or comments thus far on what we, what we explored? Questions, comments? Looking around. Okay. All right, let's go on. Let's move on to the next reading. I don't know why it does this. What is that? Okay. Torah reading for Pekude, reading 5. We begin Exodus chapter 40. So now we have the Mishkan. It's all built. And they brought it to Moses to put up. When should it actually be put up? When should it be erected? Here we go. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, On the day of the first month, on the first of the month, you shall set up the Mishkan of the Tent of Meeting. Okay, so let me just explain what this is. It's supposed to be done on Rosh Chodesh Nisan, the first day of the first month. The first month, every, any time in Torah that you find month number one, it is not Tishrei, it's not Rosh Hashanah month. It's Nisan, the month of Pesach. So just to give you a little context, tomorrow, tonight and tomorrow, and tomorrow night and Friday, the next two days, is Rosh Chodesh Adar Sheni. It's two days of Rosh Chodesh, of the, the first days, if you will, of the second Adar. So in about approximately one month, about 30, 31 days, will be Rosh Chodesh Nisan, which is when this was supposed to happen, the first of the month of Nisan. What year is this? 2449. I'll tell you why that's significant. The Exodus happened in the year 2448, the 15th of Nisan, the middle of the month, High noon, uh, high moon, not noon, at the full moon of the month of Nisan is when the Exodus happened, the night of the 15th, which is, yeah, the night of the 15th, which is actually good if you're, um, if you're leaving Egypt at night or whatever it is, it's good to have a full moon guiding your way. Anyway, they left on the 15th of the month of Nisan. So when did this happen? A little less than one year later. You with me? They got out of Egypt 15 Nisan, 2448, and the Mishkan was supposed to be put up, erected for the first time, almost one year later, the first of Nisan, 2449. So I know it's not 365 days, but imagine if a year theoretically is because Jewish years. But if, if let's say 365 days minus 15, because the first of the month instead of the 15th, 350 days later, after the Exodus, they already had a... Mishkan. By the way, a lot had happened in that year, right? They got out of Egypt, the sea split, they got the Torah at Sinai, they sinned with the golden calf, they had to do tshuva from that, they had to get back on track after that sin, and they built the Mishkan. A lot happened in that first year. It's an incredible amount of stuff. So God says to Moses, the Mishkan is built, let it wait until Nisan 1, the first day of Nisan. And then you shall set up the Mishkan of the meeting, and there, there in the tent of meeting in that building, you shall place the Ark of the Testimony, and you shall spread the dividing curtain toward the Ark. In other words, that's the dividing curtain between the holy, the larger internal space, and the smaller, sacred, holy of holies space. Curtain should be there. You shall bring in to that building, the tent of meeting, to the larger space. You should bring in the table and set its arrangement. You shall bring in the menorah and kindle its lamps. Look at that. 
actually kindling it. You shall place the golden altar for incense before the Ark of the Testimony. That means centered, right? You shall place the screen of the entrance to the Mishkan, put out that outer curtain. I mean, we're like literally listing the same things again, but in this context, it's not what they brought to Moses. It's what God is telling Moses to set up on that first day of Nisan. You shall place the altar of the burnt offering in front of the entrance of the, of the Mishkan of the tent of meeting. You shall place the washstand between the tent of meeting and the altar, and there you shall put water, and you shall set up the courtyard all around. Make sure you got that courtyard, that framework. And you shall put up the screen for the gate of the courtyard. There you go. You shall take the anointing oil and anoint the Mishkan and everything within it. And you shall sanctify it and all its furnishings. And thus, it will become a holy thing. This is something we pointed out before. To actually be consecrated as holy, the vessels of the Mishkan have to be anointed with a special oil. You shall anoint the altar for the burnt offering. And all its implements, you shall sanctify the altar. Thus, the altar will become a holy of holies. You shall anoint the washstand and its base and sanctify it. You shall bring Aaron and his sons near the entrance of the tent of meeting. You shall bathe them in water. This is the mikvah, right? Bathe them in water. And you're going to ask, where do they get a mikvah in the desert? And I won't necessarily have a good answer for that. But I do know this. I mean, I do have a good answer. They had a miraculous well. Remember the well? How did they drink at all? They had a well of Miriam. A well of Miriam that would travel with them and so that, thus it doubled as a mikvah. And now you're thinking, they drank from the mikvah. Okay, I'm not going to get into details. But... But it seemed maybe they divided the sources into two separate spaces of water. I would hope that uh, they, kept it, they, they kept them different. Okay, next. So they bathed in water. So this is not saying what happened, but what should happen. God is telling Moses, this is what you should do when you set it up on that first day of Nisan. You need to set it up and put this, put everything in the right location, essentially. I'm just paraphrasing. And then anoint the items and bathe the mikvah up the, uh, the, the priests, the kohanim, and then clothe them, then dress them, and you shall clothe Aaron with the holy garments. And literally, yes, the, the, what this is indicating is true. Moses actually, for the first time, as they were being inaugurated, he actually helped them get dressed. It's kind of like, um, I gave this analogy a few weeks ago. It's like um, there's a tradition that a groom, a chatan, a groom, before the wedding, puts on a kittel. You know what a kittel is? A kittel is the, um, the white robe that uh, traditionally is worn by men on Yom Kippur. Somewhere in Rosh Hashanah. But Yom Kippur, you ever see like those white robes like, that are worn on the high holidays? All right, that's called a kittel. I don't know what kittel means. Maybe it means robe. That's, that would be the obvious meaning of that. So um, the chassan, a chatan, a groom on the day of the wedding, traditionally also wears that because a wedding day is like a Yom Kippur. I don't, I, you may know this. Uh, bride and groom are traditionally fast on the day of the wedding. Legit. No eating or drinking until after the chuppah. The yichur room, they go into a room of seclusion after the chuppah. That's the first time they eat. Unless you get married on Rosh Chodesh, because you're not supposed to fast on Rosh Chodesh, which happens to be the day we got married on Rosh Chodesh. So, loophole. There you go. No fasting. Although, I think you're supposed to make it up another day, which reminds me... <laughs> reminds me about that uh, little makeup fast day. But the point is that it's a mini Yom Kippur. The day of the wedding is a mini Yom Kippur. We don't eat, we don't, um, eat or drink. The bride and groom don't eat or drink. They wear white, traditionally white. The bride wears a white dress. The groom wears a white kittel robe thing. Um, what, are, what are the other uh, connections? Oh, it says that on the day of a wedding, 
Um, all of our transgressions are forgiven, like Yom Kippur. It's a day of atonement for the bride and groom. Not necessarily for everybody in attendance, but like the bride and groom, certainly. It's like kind of like a new start, a fresh, you know, new life, new start, blank slate. So there's a lot of similarities between the chuppah and the, the wedding day for the bride and groom. Oh, after the, when they finally break their fast, they have bagels. I'm kidding. Not necessarily. So anyway, the point is that there's, uh, there's this connection. So why did I say all of this? Oh, yeah, I know why. On the, the, traditionally, when the groom gets you know, dressed for the chuppah, the, traditionally he's helped into the kittel, although you could put it on yourself, but traditionally there's like a kind of a dressing of the groom, if you will, if that's like, uh, if you can imagine that, that thing, it's like, you know, the, either the father or the father-in-law, whatever, like they, they participate in helping the groom get dressed in this white kittel for the, before the chuppah. In a similar way, you know, sort of, Moses was to help the Kohanim, the priests, get dressed. How many before their first time serving in, the, in this Mishkan? Before that inauguration, on that inauguration day. Um, how many Kohanim were there? Just to, just to get clarity on this, there were five total. One of them being the high priest. So Aaron, his brother. Moses' brother was the high priest, the Kohen Gadol. And then Aaron had four sons. At that point in time, there were four sons. Two of them, of course, passed away on the day of the inauguration. But we'll get there and we'll talk about that actually in a moment. But there were four sons at that point. Um, Nad, um, Nadav, Avihu, Elazar, and Itamar. Those are the four sons of Aaron, plus Aaron himself, the dad, five priests. Moses was, God is saying, Moses was to dress them for the inauguration. Okay, Rabbi? yes. Rabbi? <laughs> I don't know if it's another Judaism's Gifts to the World, but there's a new series on HBO. It's called The Gilded Age. It's very interesting. It's a period piece, I guess, the turn of the century in New York City, Manhattan. Okay. You know, the wealthy barons of the railroads and things. So they all had huge staffs of service and things, and they had a formal lunch every day. And before their formal lunch, they would, people, their staff would help them dress every day. There you go. So I only mention the wedding because it may sound unusual that somebody is helping someone else get dressed. Why is somebody make just get dressed? But there, it sounds like that's a that's an interesting um, you know interesting information. Is that like maybe that's the way that it was done for aristocracy or you know for someone of importance? The part of that would be that somebody. You know, maybe this is obvious to everyone. Maybe I need to watch more period pieces and whatever. But like, it was about somebody dressing the other one. So in this case, Moses, Moses is dressing his brother and his nephews, or is supposed to. He's not actually doing it now. This is the command of what should happen when that happens. I wanted to mention one more thing timeline-wise. The first time the Mishkan was put up was supposed to be, was going to be, and it was the first day of Nisan. No. Um, yeah, was the, the, the day of inauguration of the Mishkan was the first of Nisan 2449. It's basically a little, a little 15 days less than a year after the Exodus. But and this is what I wanted to add. Just got myself confused. Um, for seven days before Rosh Chodesh, so like in the month of Adar, which is the month we're in now, right? The month of Adar, for seven days... They did training. Every day they set up the Mishkan. Every day there were some offerings brought. Every day it was like a kind of getting 
You know, like when a rest, lahavda, when a restaurant opens, they'll sometimes do something called like a soft open or soft, something like that. Yeah. Trial Where, runs. Yeah. Trial, trial run. runs. Well, they'll, they'll actually serve food. They're going to make right. the kitchen. They're making food, right? But it's not the open. Friends and family. They invite the friends and family. Right. It's not open to the public. So there was right. seven days of that before Rosh Chodesh Nisan. So it opened formally, the ribbon cutting or whatever it is, the, op- the grand opening of the Mishkan was that first day of Nisan 2449 a little less than one year after the Exodus. But for the pre- seven days prior to that, there was um, this kind of in-house setup, run through, whatever it was, and Moses was bringing some offerings to inaugurate. Like That was kind of the pre-inauguration inauguration, and then there was opening day. And that's why the Torah portion, in which we read about the passing of Aaron's two sons that happened on opening day, um, is, is called Shmini. Shmini. Shmini means eighth. It was the eighth day. There were seven days of inauguration, and then the eighth day is when they passed away. But it wasn't the eighth day of Nisan. It was the first day of Nisan. Does that, am, I, am I being confusing here? I hope I'm not. Right? So seven days of inauguration, and then Rosh Chodesh Nisan, the first day of Nisan, that's when it was to open, and that's when it actually happened. All right, back inside. Yeah, Joy. Okay, I like to think of it as like the parents that help their children, and the mother will help her bride, her daughter, and the father will help his son. And Moses is helping his children, and God is helping his children clothe, dress for the first time. Like you say, they practiced all this. Right, Well, it's like Moses is helping bring it all together. Yes. that's Before they're sent out to do the work. It's like before the bride and groom come together, they come from their parents. The very, very, very good, very powerful, very, um, very emotional the way you said it. Yeah. So you have this, this idea of kind of sending them off into the world or sending them on this mission. And he's kind of, you know, girding them or, you know, giving them that blessing strength. And that very much is, is I think, very effectively captures the energy of that experience. Coupled with the fact that, and I mentioned this in very, very much in passing, for those seven days, Moses was doing all of the offerings and kind of getting the altar ready and set up. That they did not do the offerings. It was he who was doing it to kind of you know set set the tone, get things started, and then kind of passing the baton. For seven days, he almost had the status of a Kohen. Because only a Kohen brings offerings. For the seven days of the pre-inauguration inauguration, so he was doing all the offering. And he had the status, halachically, of a, of a Kohen almost, quasi-Kohen. And then after that is when he officially uh, transfer, uh, tra- um, transferred that to his brother and his nephews. But, but Rabbi, is it Moses? I don't, what is his formal status? I mean, it seems to be higher he's, than a Kohen he's anyway. a, No, he's a Levi. He's a Levite. He was a Levite. I mean, that's, that's no small potatoes. Mark is a Levite. I mean, this is very I mean, good stuff. Is he Sadat? I mean, what's, he's better. I mean, not better, but I mean, he's our, like, you know, he's our number one. I mean, he's our guy. He yeah, has... look, I mean, no, no one's taking away anything from him. But at the end of the day, there are different roles, right? A, a, a leader, a, a Moses has his role, and a Kohen or high, Kohen Gadol high priest has his role. Two different roles. The point is that for those seven days, Moses also had the role of a priest. And then he... He gave, you know, he then gave that blessing. So he doesn't have an official title or anything. He's just, he communicated directly with God, but he doesn't have an official. He was the leader. He was the Nasi. He was the leader of the people. He's the managing 
director. There you go. <laughs> right. Orchestrates everything. Yes, yes. <laughs> Amongst other things. Chief complaint um, chief complaint receiver. And well, that what goes else? With his modesty, <laughs> right? It goes with his modesty. Yeah. Yeah. He, he doesn't have any he's not Mr. Number One. He didn't need a title. I mean he had it. He had right. plenty of titles. Anyway, he was Moses. Everyone knew him. It's not like people are like, oh, who is who's that guy that's always standing up there in the front of the crowd? Everyone knew who Moses was. All right. So let's um we did clothing, Wait. dressing. Yeah. Is this for some reason, but maybe I'm I'm I have this confused. Is this the first time that it says Aaron will be the priest? No. I thought it's I thought it's been said before. Yeah, yeah, okay, before. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely before. Yeah. But here, here he's anointed. He's not anointed before. Well, he's not yet anointed. He's not yet anointed. He's, God's telling Moses what to do when you anoint him. It's very important to understand that Torah may say the same thing three times. But one is when God told Moses about it. One is when Moses communicated about it with the people that it's going to happen to. This is what's going to happen. And then another time, maybe, when it actually happens. So it's not that Torah is repeating itself. It's just literally timelining what happened. At point A, God tells Moses what to do. At point B, Moses actually does it. So we're not up to point B yet. That's my point. We're still in point A. All right, now let's do verse 14. So we talked about Moses clothing Aaron with the garments, right, to serve as a coin. And you shall bring his sons near and clothe them with tunics. I think we did 13, yeah. You shall clothe Aaron with the holy garments. And then you shall bring his sons near and clothe them with tunics. And you shall anoint them. As you have anointed their father, anoint them, meaning the children, the four sons, as you've anointed their father, Aaron, so that they may so that they so that they may serve so that they may serve me as Kohanim. And this shall be so that their anointment shall remain for them as an everlasting kahuna throughout the generation. In other words, anoint them, and that will be like the lineage. Thus Moses did, according to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did. Okay, the, the, the Torah is um, explaining that that's what ultimately did happen. Now, let's do this. Rashi, you shall spread toward the ark, an expression denoting protection. For this dividing curtain was a partition, not a covering. Oh, yeah, that's very important. Spread toward the ark, meaning it was a vertical, a vertical curtain, not a horizontal. It wasn't a covering over the the Mishkan building, that there were four layers of that. This was a dividing curtain this way between the Holy and the Holy of Holies. Even the priests, and I probably should just clarify something that may be obvious. When the only Kohanim, only priests were allowed in the building, in that Mishkan building, wherein was the menorah, the inner altar, and the showbread table. But only the high priest was allowed behind the other curtain inside the Holy of Holies. One day a year on Yom Kippur. He was allowed to go behind that second curtain. So behind the first curtain into the building, I mean, there was only four Kohanim. The Kohanim were allowed. Behind the second curtain into the innermost chamber, only Aaron, the high priest, one day a year. All right, back inside. Back inside. Yeah. So when it says here in the Torah, you shall bring Aaron and his sons near to the entrance of the tent of meeting. It's not meeting, the people are not meeting, it's meeting God. Is that what that means? Tent of meeting, yes, yes, very good. Tent of meeting is the phrase, is the name, the euphemism for the Mishkan building. 
tent of meeting, i.e. that's where God communes with Moses or, and then through Moses with us. That is the point of divine communion. Exactly. Exactly. That's what tent of meeting is. Um, and you shall bring in the table and its arrangement. What does that mean, its arrangement? So I glossed over it before, but Raj explains the arrangement means the two stacks of loaves of showbread. And we explained um, in previous Torah portions that there were two stacks, two vertical stacks of bread, six and six. So six loaves stacked on top of each other. Well, I mean, not directly. There was separators in between. And that's what it means, bringing the arrangement. And that takes us to the end. Okay, so this is it for today. What is the moral of the story? I don't know. The few things that stuck out for me are, or the one thing maybe, is this idea of them bringing the Mishkan to Moses because they couldn't lift it. They couldn't put it up. And then Moses also couldn't do it. And so God says to Moses, just do what you can. And I got the rest. And to me, this is a very, and I mentioned it before, obviously, but to me, this is what my takeaway is from this. The one that I'm thinking about right now is the idea of not feeling the need to be able to finish the job, to be able to, you know, get everything done. And if I can't, then I'm not going to start. No, 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 no. Let me do what I can. Let me do what I can. Let me plug whatever holes I can plug. And then... God will, will, will give me the energy or will take care of the rest somehow. So this is, um, this is evocative of what it says in Pirkei Avot. I have a sitter here. It says, Loi alecha, hamalacha ligmar. You don't have to finish the work. However, but you do not have the freedom to desist from starting. Right? Those are the, those are the two teachings. Right? Don't expect... Not don't expect. Don't. You are not obligated to get it all done. But just because you might not get it all done doesn't mean you shouldn't start. Because you're not permitted to just sit back and and not do anything. So we got to do something. Do we have to finish it? We may not finish it. Maybe God will finish it. But we got to get started. This is true in every area of life. Spiritually, pragmatically, helping others, helping self physically, spiritually, etc. Thank you all for joining today. Don't forget, tonight we have, um, tonight we have, of course, Torah studies. We have an amazing class. And the topic is the inner eternal Mishkan. Mishkan on a deep internal level and eternal, internal and eternal level. So join me tonight for an amazing discussion. 7.30, both in person with Babka. I have the babka ready. Here's the babka. It's the Trader Joe's Brooklyn babka. When I call it Brooklyn babka, there's a reason. It's literally Brooklyn babka right here. So that is coming up tonight. Babka. Is that, made, is that factory like in Crown Heights? No, it's in Borough Park. This is as Jewy as you can get. This is not your, this is not like Trader Joe's uh, California Babka. This is literally Brooklyn Babka, not Crown Heights, but it's Bar Park. Uh, Bar Park is where, is where the. Can we visit the, the factories, you know, like get it fresh when we're there? Yeah, if we go stuff out to Bar Park. There's bakeries in Crown Heights as well. Although a lot of the bakeries in Crown Heights get their stuff from Bar Park, but it's fresh in the morning. It comes in the morning. They bring, you know, some guy brings it by. Some places make their own. Crown Heights at this Trader point. Joe's. From, <laughs> by the way, one thing about Trader Joe's, kudos to Joe's, is they are able to keep the price. I don't know, able to. They keep the price down. It's not like oh, it's like it's 
This is super kosher babka. When I say super kosher, it's like pasisrol, like highest level baked goods kosher. Imported. Imported, but it's the highest level. It doesn't say it on the package. On the package, it'll just say, oh, you parav, like everything. But it's like, it's like super kosher, kosher, which it would cost, somebody like would charge like $11.99 for this babka, theoretically. Trader, but Trader Joe's, it's like the babka they carry. So it's what, $5.99, $4.99. It's like Trader Joe's prices. Gotta love Trader Joe's. Anyway. Black and white cookies made there too? Same deal. Same bakery. Look up. I believe it is. I got the black and white cookies. No, no, but I'm saying who's the actual manufacturer? I believe. One second. Um, um, I believe the company is. Wait, 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 wait. Um, is it Greens or Schicks or. Ah, what is it? What is it? What is it? Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Greens. Is it on the label? Greens Babkas. I bet. I think it's Greens. I think it's Greens Babka. Actually, maybe. Greens Babka Bakery. No, I might be wrong. Is it? Is it? Yeah, Greens Bakery, the original Brooklyn Babka. Yeah, but I'm looking, I'm looking at their thing now, and they rebrand it. They white label it for many different Peoples, right. they're making a lot of babka. Let's put it that way. Trying to remember, is it greens or is it something else? I don't know. Either way, <coughs> um, it's authentic. All right, I don't know why we're talking about babka. Oh, for tonight, for tonight. So join me in person or online. Bring your own babka, B-Y-O-B, 7.30. Don't forget, next week we begin some brand new, uh, next week we begin a brand new course. You'll be the judge. We also have... A lot of upcoming stuff. Check out the website, intownjewishacademy.org. Sign up and join us. It's going to be a party. All right. We'll see you all. Joy and Joy and Donna and Mark and Olia. Be well. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you.